Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. The idea of mindfulness is so powerful in wilderness because there are no escapes. There are no easy self-medicators. There are no distractions. And that invitation is into a deeper level of consciousness, right? A deeper level of, of awareness, which then is a, is a really, really great vehicle on top of that to do traditional therapies, 12-step work, CBT, whatever therapy, whatever approach you have. So... Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host today on Ask the Expert. We have Dr. Brad Reedy. Dr. Reedy is the owner and executive clinical director of Evoke Therapy Programs, where wilderness therapy is provided. He has a BS in family science and an MS and PhD in marriage and family therapy. Dr. Reedy's research and clinical experience includes parenting issues, family trauma, treatment with sexual abuse victims, domestically violent offenders, adults, adolescents with substance abuse issues, eating disorder patients, sexual predators, attachment issues, developmental psychology, and children suffering with grief and loss. He has authored two books, the journey of the heroic parent, your child's struggle and the road home and the audacity to be you learning to love your horrible rotten self born and raised in orange County, California, the middle of three boys. Dr. Reedy was raised by his mother. He grew up surfing, listening to Bob Dylan and causing his mom a great deal of grief today. Dr. Reedy is married and has four children. He is an avid fan of the Los Angeles Lakers and the Anaheim Angels and can be easily engaged in a debate on any sports-related topic, which I did not do in this podcast. Brad is amazing, such an amazing expert. I'm so excited for people to hear about wilderness therapy and particularly about the Evoke therapy programs. They are incredible. I have been on the ground as I talk about in this episode. I have been in the groups in the wilderness with the clients and seen firsthand the incredible work that they're doing and the care and, and safety of this program. Absolutely amazing. And I, I really do consider, you know, what it would be like to, to do that now and to do that. I think we all would benefit from going to wilderness therapy, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, so Brad and I talk about that. We talk about misconceptions of what therapy is, what wilderness therapy is, uh, what we're seeing today with parents, parenting advice, what Brad would do if he had a magic wand and could make all the parents see the reality that the best thing they can be is their authentic selves. So I am really just hopeful that people who are unfamiliar with therapy, with wilderness therapy, uh, or have preconceived notions, listen to this episode and I really, really encourage you to have an open mind, check out their programs online, evoke therapy programs. I am not uh, an advertiser. I just genuinely love this man and, and what he's done in these programs. So just putting that out there. All right. Episode 131. Ask the expert, Dr. Brad Reedy. Let's do this.
You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Brad, thank you so much for being here. This is very exciting for me. I'm so glad to be here. So good to see you again. You too. We always start um, our episodes with a picture. Um, It started out as a getting a bad haircut photo, and then it's morphed into whatever people, however people interpret it. So I have two photos Uh uh, of you and they both uh, one is really adorable and the other one is a very, very large mustache. Can you tell me about them? Well, one is my inner child that I keep right over there, my little boy. I think that's the one that I sent you. And so yep. I, I do that to remind myself actually every day and to honor him. And so that's my sweet little boy that it's taken me many years to fall in love with, really. And the other one was I was in college. <laughs> there were There were some pictures in that photo shoot that I did not send you because... I would not do them today, uh, given given what the subject matter was. But I was asked by a costume company, me and a couple of friends, to do a photo shoot. So I think it was a picture of me as a Bobby, as a police officer, uh-huh. London police uh-huh. officer. So that was me and a couple of friends doing a photo shoot for a local during college for a local uh, uh, costume store. So that was a fun fun time. I love that the the uh, the mustache is really is really good. Right. So, and those are both great um, introductions to you and who you are um, in terms of, you know, college, your background, you have a master's and a PhD in marriage and family therapy. um, And you have spent a long time working to get to love your inner child and done your own work in your own family. Um, Mm -hmm. But you are also the owner of a uh, young adult and teen wilderness program. Right, right. How, how did you decide to get into family therapy? What was that your path to being a therapist? You you know, I was one of the kids that I've treated. I I was, Mm -hmm. my, my path was, I was acting out as a young person growing up with a single mother in Southern California, and she, she was doing the best she could. And, and at the same time, she was ill-equipped to kind of manage the the feelings. The She said to me just a few years ago, when you were growing up, you were too big for me, which was a very mm-hmm. validating and also just a, just a sad reminder of, of what it was like growing up. So I was introduced to it on, on the client end. I had no desire to be a therapist. <laughs> Growing up after that, I didn't like therapy. I didn't like therapists. I even had a friend when I was 20 suggest that I might be a good therapist. And I actually lashed out at him at the, at the time that we had <laughs> no <the> longer friends. <laughs> right. But then I took a child development course in college, my first semester of my first year. And as we were studying about children and, and birth order specifically, I realized mm. I know all of this already. I've already, it's already in me. And so I knew my first semester of college what I want to do for the rest of my my life. Falling into wilderness therapy specifically, which is the program that I run, was an accident. A professor recommended that I work at a wilderness therapy program, and immediately I saw that it was the most transformative milieu I'd ever witnessed. So I got into that, and then we started our own a couple of years later. 
One thing, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on as, as an expert is, um, and this topic is near and dear to my heart. Um, I went to Utah, went, was sent Mm -hmm. to Utah as a teen and, um, with parents who my problems, my, I was too big for them as well and who were doing the best that they could. And I went in a time where wilderness therapy, you know, wilderness therapy, I don't, in your circles, it probably doesn't have this, this connotation, but it often for people who aren't embedded in the recovery world has a very negative connotation about wilderness is sending your kids away into the woods. And, and part of that comes from some of the programs that I experienced at the times I experienced them really, you know, that I've, I've since um, been introduced to them and they're very different now. And one of the things that was so amazing for me and really healing for me, to be honest, I had the opportunity to come and see your program and to boots on the ground, you know, wilderness therapy. I, I went and I was too, literally too sick to, to be able to go out into the field. So I got sent somewhere else, but the, the experience of many and my experience in Utah had been so damaging mm-hmm. that um, what people would often come to me to talk to me about what to do with their team. Mm-hmm. And I had this negative experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know what a lot of those answers were, what the, what it was like. And I got the chance to come to evoke in Utah, um, and see your program and hang out with you and, and the people that work there. It was so powerful and healing for me to see a program and to see the, the love and the care and the safety that these teens were in. And, and frankly, it opened my eyes to how many things I use to, um, escape on a daily basis, because we went out there. I, I, I and I always used to say, I would have run away. I'd have run and run away. And then we drove out there. I was like, I would not have been able to get out of here at all. Like I was like, I'm full shit. I call it right now. Couldn't have found right. my way out of here. And I got there and saw these, and we, I went to, into a teen, um, boy, young man group. And they, you know, they were, had their journals and a pencil and like, and I realized how stripped emotionally bare of all the things you use. I, I realized I had never been that stripped bare, even in all the work that I've done, these kids were doing work that was so intense and incredible and, and an, a completely unusual opportunity that you'd never have anywhere else to be able to engage in what's really going on. There's no escape from yourself there in a beautiful way. And it was just so profound. And, and so I, I, I really, as an example of, you know, recommendation for teens and, and, and being a parent, it's really important that people know that there are amazing programs that offer this now Mm -hmm. and that it is in some of the horror stories that we hear are are not the norm. Right. Right. You, you know, I, I think it's important for those people that have those stories to be able to tell them to 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 have witnesses to what they went through, and I, I support their their process. But but just like having a bad experience with a doctor or a dentist right. <laughs> doesn't mean that, that the medical and dental field professions are, are useless. It must be a compassionate approach. And there's a saying in play therapy that the reason we use play therapy with young children is because play is the language of children. And in a lot of ways, in wilderness therapy with our young adults and adolescents, they, they don't come in therapy willing. They don't come in with a strong desire to improve their lives and their circumstances. So 
yes, we do talk therapy. Yes, we have really well-trained staff and therapists who do a, a very complex, nuanced, sophisticated version of, of traditional therapies that we would all we would all know about. But it's the milieu. It, it, mm. It's and what you just described really, Ashley, was the the milieu is a, is an invitation to mindfulness because even you visiting, you became aware of what you didn't have, what you do have, what you <laughs> yeah. take for granted. So the idea of mindfulness is so powerful in wilderness because there are no escapes, there are no easy self medicators, there are no distractions, and that invitation is into a deeper level of consciousness, right? A deeper level of, of awareness which then is a, is a really, really great vehicle on top of that to do traditional therapies, 12-step work, yeah. CBT, whatever therapy, whatever approach you have. So absolutely, it can be really, really powerful. Do you hear about that a lot? Do you hear that, um, you know, kind of folklore about, about wilderness and, and old ideas and people, um, you know, and, and also I want to, you know, say that at, again, at the time that I went in the early two thousands, there was this idea that you break people and you build them back up. And that was, right. those were the programs that I particularly went through. And we've heard Paris Hilton talk about them and, and they've come out right. Is this idea of break you down and build you back up. And in some cases it worked, I saw kids it worked well for that is not what's going on anymore in, in these programs. Do you, do you deal with, or what are maybe, I guess a better question, what are the misconceptions that you deal with? I think you, you stated very well the, the, the old idea that therapy is about breaking somebody down. I, I never liked that phrase from the day that I started. Also what, what was um, a misunderstanding. I was listening to a podcast by the gentleman, the journalist who wrote the book troubled recently. And he was talking about, in his day, there was very little parent accountability and parent work. And immediately when I began practicing wellness therapy, I wanted to involve the family all along. And, and today we have an incredibly robust parent curriculum and, and parent participation program. So um, I, I think it was it was seen as, as, as shock. It was seen as a kick right. in the pants. You know, it was seen as disruptive. But but what what we try to do is realize that it's a very difficult time. These kids are struggling and any trauma-informed therapist in any milieu realizes that punching somebody in the nose doesn't cure them, but rather <laughs> understanding and meeting them with compassion, no matter how crazy or or, or seemingly unlovable they, they, they seem to be, what they need is more love, more compassion, more understanding, more parent support. And so, yes, those those misconceptions are out there and people have their valid individual experiences. But my push as, as a therapist today, whether it's in my program, which I spend the majority of my time focusing on, but even in an outpatient practice that I keep and in my trainings and my public speaking is in all versions of therapy to be more compassionate, to give the client mm -hmm. their dignity and to realize that, you know, really what you're treating in therapy is you're treating shame and resistance. You're not teaching. That's the easy part of therapy is teaching a skill or a lesson. The hard part is getting past the shame or the resistance that the person feels judged or unsafe or, or broken. And so it, it's kind of the opposite of that old break them down. Right. It's, That's what look, you're doing something that seems crazy on one level. I get it. You, you, you've earned your spot here. But in some context, whatever you're doing, whatever self-medicating behavior you're doing makes sense. And that's where I want to meet you. I want to meet you in that context, in that place. And I saw that. I saw that they, there's no... and and. 
And I felt what was interesting for me, right. Is I, I sober a long time, worked in the industry, had my experience and I showed up and I was sitting with those young men and <laughs> I felt the discomfort of my own lack of mindfulness. I felt the discomfort. I, I, I had a moment where I was like, I would be so crawling out of my skin, right. not because I, I was doing anything wrong, but just because living in the world, uh, you know, this world that we live in, there's so many ways to distract yourself, even small ways to distract yourself. And we do talk about mindfulness a lot. It's very hard to do, to be mindful in any normal context right. when you, when you have that as a comparison and what better opportunity to get to down to causes and conditions in a short period of time, relatively, um, then out in nature and out doing these things. And, and, um, I do think there's a lot of misconceptions and, and I think, um, you know, your program with is, is what was really interesting to me to watch is how much, um, talk around just letting it be okay, wherever they were, wherever they came, like, however they came in. And I remember, going in, you know, I remember being taken to wilderness and being taken to these programs. And the first thing that was made really abundantly clear to me was that I was an, that everything about me was unacceptable. Mm. And, and I felt that I, I would never have told you that, but I felt that way too. Right. I was like, Mm -hmm. I know I'm unacceptable. And, and I, I, what I thought was, I got to be even more unacceptable. Like if I'm going to be unacceptable, I'm going to be the most unacceptable that I could be. Me and you both. Yeah, you're right. Like that's the you're like you know, lean in, right? And um, and I think there was this instead of like you're just wholly unacceptable, there was this idea that you must be really hurting. There must be a lot going on for you to right. to be acting out this way. Can you like tell me what's up? What's going on? Right. Right. And the wonderful thing about uh, 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 our, our version of wilderness therapy is primitive living nomadic, which means we're not in cabins, we don't have a base camp model, and we're moving from place to place, is that you are you reveal yourself in your relationships and your daily activities. So I don't have to rely on really, all, all the time, really courageous self-disclosure because you leak it out <laughs> in this kind of a milieu, right? It, it, right? it gets exposed. I was thinking about something you were saying too, my, my favorite teacher of Buddhism, Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. said that the first thing that happens when people feel a toothache is they, re- they realize that they have been ungrateful for yeah. the non-toothache. Yeah. You know, the minute you get a t- toothache, you're like, well, I've been taking for granted my non-toothache all this time. And so there is in primitive living, there is in, in, in programs that challenge you in these ways. There is an invitation to mindfulness that's automatic that you experienced. And, and, and that mindfulness is so closely associated to all the feelings that we're trying to escape from our self-medicators, right? It doesn't have to be a big T trauma. It can just be learning to feel and be present with yourself. And that's why the, the, what you were describing with just letting them be and meeting them where they're at, I say to our staff all the time, I say non-trained professionals won't see therapy because it's invisible to the non-trained professional because it's listening, it's holding space, it's being quiet, it's gentle suggestions and offerings and ideas and seeing if the client is ready to grab that that offering or, or that idea. So that observation you have about what it was like for those kids and what you felt 
is really profound and, and on point for, I think, what makes this milieu, this, this delivery method for therapy so powerful, so impactful. How do you describe wilderness therapy and in particular your model, Evoke's model of wilderness mm-hmm. therapy? I, I simply, to, to make it simple, I say it's, it's camping therapy. Okay. You're, you know, you're outdoors. But, but what, I, what I really refer to, because it's, it's in the popular culture and the literature, is that NASA, when they have a team of astronauts that, that haven't worked together before, to build trust, they learned that primitive living nomadic wilderness therapy is the most effective because mm. it creates vulnerability. You have to rely on each other. You have to trust each other. You have to communicate. They discovered that team building activities and contrived exercises don't do it as much as this kind of real life experience. And so I just described that wilderness therapy is 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 meeting meeting the challenges, meeting the challenge of life in a very primitive way so that who you are gets exposed to you, to your peers and to everybody. You don't have to create exercises and group therapy assignments and, and workbooks out in wilderness therapy because the, the child, the, the individual shows up, you see it. And so a child who's defended or, or, or even therapy savvy, you know, there are a lot of therapy oh, yeah. savvy folks. Yep. Yep. You know, in 12 step, I would get kids that were indoctrinated into the 12 step Mm-hmm. literature and culture and they would be talking about the steps and i would say i don't see it you say you've let go but i don't see it in your daily behavior i still see you holding on tightly and trying to control everything even i when i went out there to visit my son who, who was a client after we started the program and it was raining i remember thinking the rain is getting in the way of my visit the rain and the weather is a, a barrier for me to 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 do the work that i need to do and then i realized of course this is the visit. The visit is that life brings rain with it sometimes and mm-hmm. you have to deal with it. And there's no sterile, perfect environment to build a relationship with your child. You have to learn how to make a shelter with them, get in a sleeping bag, try not to get wet, cozy up together. And that is the therapy because it, it's life. It, it's really just living. So I, I think I could talk about it poetically. I could talk about it using, like I said, the NASA example. Um, but, but it's really just, somebody said it to me many years ago, wilderness therapy is like life, only more. It's a great explanation. It's a, it's a great description. It is, it's actually, it's much more like, it's much closer to real life, interestingly right. enough, right? Of right. who, it's deep down who we actually are without all the pomp and circumstance and, and, right. um, and it gets to that. I, I, I love that you, your children, and I, I've said this to other families who I've talked to since then, um, especially knowing my experience, I said, look, evoke is a problem, a, a program that I would send my boys to. That's right. how I feel about it as a person who didn't have that experience. I would send my children. And one of the things that people often feel when we talk, when I've talked to them about, Hey, listen, your teen right now is really struggling. You have a limited amount of time to do something about that, that they don't have to opt into right away. And I know that sounds crazy. And I know that sounds like punishment. Um, a lot of people see sending someone somewhere they don't want to go, pulling them out of their situation against their will as punishment. We're punishing you by putting you into the woods. You have to sleep in a sleep, you know, like this primitive living, they see it as a punishment. How do you shift that perspective for families 
Great question. There, there's, there's a couple of things. You know, the, the, the idea of sending your child away to something like, like our program for the families that I work with is like tearing off an arm. These are not families that are disconnected and rigid and, and, and uncaring. These are families more often than not that are enmeshed and, and hovering yeah, right. and anxious. And so first and foremost, you're talking about a, a group of people who are finding this, this step to be incredibly courageous. And, and what I talk about is it's an opportunity that closeness is not about proximity. Closeness mm -hmm. is a state of mind. And so the letter writing that you do in wilderness therapy, the distance that's created by your child being out there begins to establish a sense of separate self in the parent and a sense of separate self mm. in the child. And that becomes the foundation for intimacy. And you know this, Ashley, as well as anybody that the first ingredient in, in intimacy in any relationship is a self, is an individual right. person, right? Is a, a, a person who, to some extent has a sense of who they are and what they feel and what they value and don't. And so that separation as painful, it's the same exact separation that happens if a child were to get in a car accident and be brought into a trauma room, you, the parent wouldn't be allowed in the room. I don't care how much you love your child. I don't care that you love them with all of your heart. The doctor, the nurse, the trauma specialist will say, for right now, you're gonna stand outside of this room over there. We're going to get them stabilized, assess them, see what they might need long term, and then we will bring you in for visits. And then they will be moved to a different room, and then you can visit them as, as much as you want. And then they'll go to rehabilitation, rehab, whatever they need, physical therapy. I think it's just like that. Wilderness therapy mm -hmm. is its a dramatic thing. To me, it seems so simple and, and right. obvious, but it's a dramatic <laughs> thing for people, but it's really just a parent setting a boundary with a child and saying, I can't give you what I what you need at home. I'm worried that you're not getting what you need. So I'm going to send you to this place. Even John Bowlby, the father of attachment theory said that sending children to boarding schools, that was the phrase he used back then, can be an important step in the attachment process because the separation is an essential ingredient in, in repairing and building attachment. Or Alice Miller, who wrote the best book on child development in the history of books, in my opinion, the drama of the gifted child, she says, a mother, because in 1979, that's the way they talked, a mother who's not especially nurturing can give to her child what the child needs if only she will allow them to get it from somebody else. Mm. So when I drop my daughter off at her softball coach, I say to my wife, at practice, we have to leave. Because part of our leaving is giving our child a chance to kind of figure it out for themselves. Or when my son went to New York or my my daughter went to California or my other child went to Chicago for school. Those are the three places my children have, have chosen for school. What I learned in therapy was they need to get away from me to grow up <laughs> so that we can be close because yeah. sometimes the old forest for the tree, you can't see the forest for the trees. You don't know how to connect unless you have some distance in that relationship. And so I talk about it metaphorically. I use examples from my personal life. I mentioned the fact that I've had two children go through our program and that it's 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 a it's a launching point for many people um, into a journey that for me is, is a is a lifelong rewarding process for sure. 
something you said when you were talking about this, this, this ripping apart, right. To in, the separation to build, I was thinking of a, you know, they talk about like when you're trying to build muscle, right. The, the, the actually you're tearing muscle and it's repairing right. as a better structure than it began. And, and interestingly enough, in that same metaphor, you have to, there's upkeep, right. It doesn't just, you know, you don't build it once and then there it stays, right. right? The muscle has to continue to expand and contract in order to, to be something that's strong and relationships are, are like that they have to, it, and as a, you know, as a mom with young kids, it's horrifying, you know, it's, it's it, on one hand, it, and I say this, there was a great meme about this where, you know, like you, when you talk to other families and and this is a great segue into my next question for you, when you talk to other families about their issues, it's so like, it's so clear from the outside as a professional, having gone through it, all the things I can see exactly. And when I am in the exact same scenario, exact same scenario, I am a mess. I don't know what to do. It's the, the, the judgment is clouded. It's totally like when my emotions, and I always say that to families, like I'm telling you something that if I were going through it, I I would need someone to tell me too, because it's Mm -hmm. so crazy and so painful and so, you know, counterintuitive that it is, it's, it, it's mind blowing when, when you're, when it's your child and all these things. And so that being said, you've sent both your children to your program. Mm-hmm. How did that, how, I mean, I could see that going both ways. I could see that being resentment, uh, you know, Hey, you just sent us to you. Like, how did that work out? I, I get asked that question once in a while and neither of my two sons resented me for, for us for a moment. And, and and I know my I know my contribution to that lack of resentment is that if they would have had anger, I would have been okay with it. Hmm. It's any boundary. The thing that 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 contributes to a child fixating and staying angry and resentful about something is that they are not allowed to feel and move through the emotion. Hmm. So as a parent, and I do, as you know, a lot of parent education, parent yeah. coaching, writing about it. Um, if you allow your child to feel, they don't get stuck in it. If, if, if there's an agenda that I have to be a good dad doing the right thing, somebody not worthy of your hurt, anger, or resentment, then I am contributing to you fixating on an emotion that didn't, wasn't allowed to be expressed and move through it. So it wasn't even a, both of my, I've, I've talked to this with both of my sons. It was not even the, the tiniest issue because I have no agenda in them not being mad at me and thinking, that I've made a mistake. In fact, when they accuse me of making mistakes, I make it my practice to say, maybe I did, and I'm sorry. And I don't justify it and talk about my good intentions, and I don't gaslight them by explaining my perspective. I just say, you have a right to be angry at me, just like I wish I'd had a right to be angry at my mother. That might have prevented some of the issues because there was no place for me to to feel what I was feeling as a child. So I, I think the worry that parents have that the children are going to resent them or be angry or feel abandoned by them. I think that's part of the work that they need to work through that. It's, mm-hmm. it's okay. If a new parent were to ask me what advice you have for a new parent, I would say, destroy the idea that you can get it right. <laughs> just destroy the idea that you can be a good parent at the end of this and just be a human parent, which means you're fallible. You make mistakes, learn to apologize, not, not from a place of guilt and shame from, but from a place of generosity. So then the child, then the child gets to experience 
all of themselves instead of the part of themselves that doesn't threaten the parent ego. Because right. that's, that's the disease. The disease is that the child has to repress the authentic self to take care of the parent. So I caught a little bit too conceptual there for the answer for the question that you asked, but I think it all ties together with why there was really none of that in our family with those interventions. Were they, I mean, I would think that if I'm in your family and my dad, like, you know, same kind of with my kids, like, you know, that if you fuck this up, you're going away, you know, like they, right. they, there has to be some understanding. Like my dad knows about this stuff. And right. It, it did. Did they see this coming? Did you ask them to go? My no. Well, the first one, <laughs> the first one earned his spot by a specific event. Okay. I was sitting. I was actually sitting at a business dinner in Miami, Florida, at a dinner, a sushi restaurant, and I was sharing with a handful of people. It was a large table, but I was talking to a few people, and I was describing how difficult it was to communicate with my son because he wasn't open about his feelings. I didn't know what was going on. And I said at that dinner, I have no real excuse to send him away because he's not really acting out. And I was interrupted at the dinner with a phone call that he'd just been arrested. <laughs> so you're like, oh, yeah, there it is. There's the universe, right? Answering my my prayers, if you yeah, will. Yeah, right, right. So the next day after an appearance in court, the the folks from my program were there and I gave them no speech. They, they treated me like a client. They said, yeah. we got it from here. They took him and on, on October 30th, uh, when he was, that was 15 years ago, they drove him down to our Southern Utah program and admitted him into the program that night. And my second son was a little bit different. It wasn't a, a crisis moment, but it was a couple of summers, a few summers ago. And I just wasn't, I was concerned about the way that, that things were going during the summer, screen time, movement with the body, some body image issues and eating issues. And so I did have a more collaborative discussion with him. And I said, here's what we're going to do. You can have some say, and we, we designed a, a custom program for him. Okay. He, he went to the Dominican Republic. He, he scuba dived, which was a fear of his, but also something that he fantasized that he wished he could do. He did some volunteer work at an orphanage, at a pet shelter, and then a really deep jungle primitive hike. And so that was more collaborative because I think by that time, my children knew that it was on the table. But I will tell you this, Ashley, I threatened the first child playfully over the it, years. Like, you know the program I run, you know this could go yeah. this way. And he told me that that one of the, the pressures in his life was that impending uh. consequence. And so I've learned since then with the others, they know it's out there. They know I can do yeah. it and I don't want, I don't want to threaten and intimidate them to control their behavior in the meantime. So with my with my third child, my second child that went, it was a little bit more collaborative. And he also knew that we weren't negotiating, that it wasn't that, that we were going to do something. And it, it, generally, right. this is what it was going to look like. And he could participate in the design of it if he was willing, willing. to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also that's a good it, you know, it, it, it depends on where the, the, the person, the kid is right. Is like, sure. what's the mindset? A lot of the kids that you or the teens, one thing I found interesting when I visited, you know, when I went, you know, I was hot ass mess, uh, you know, I was shooting heroin. Like it was a very easy, <laughs> right. it was, I did not make it difficult in terms of like, is it a problem? Right. And one of the things that thought was interesting were there are children um, or, or, or teens rather 
there at your program who were struggling with depression or struggling with video games or things that you could pass off as, you know, oh, just teenage stuff or angst or, um, or, you know, you know, therapy once a week kind of stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was really interesting and, and progressive that people were looking at these things as real issues that needed the same attention that, that me shooting heroin needed. Right. And I wondered about some of the mix of issues that, that you get at evoke, you know, what I can say to, to, to answer that question first is once the client has been with us for a few weeks, the kid who was struggling with anxiety, who was struggling with um, tantrums, struggling with, with shutting down with the family, sitting next to the kid who's shooting heroin, will inevitably turn to the kid shooting heroin and say, that wasn't my self-medicator. That wasn't my compulsive behavior. But I was a compulsive liar or mm. I was compulsively avoidant and I used video games to do it. And so I think once once we get past the misconceptions and the stigma of mental health, you know, I had a client one time who's virtually never had a drink or a drug in his life, but but by his work, he's seen his codependency. And so when a family member of his was in the hospital with organs, with organs that were failing because of addiction, he was able to say to this family member, this adult family member, my disease is just as toxic and crazy as yours. My disease of codependency, of anxiety is just as toxic as yours. So I think when you do treatment well, that's what it feels like. You had heroin. I do it with food sometimes. You know, we all do it with different things, but you're not different than me. Yours presents different risks than mine does, mine right. does for sure. But we're all the same animal. And I think that's what mental health and awareness and education teach us is that the codependent isn't healthier than the alcoholic. Right. You all have a similar disease, just different ways of medicating the, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the anxiety. So I think it kind of normalizes it. The, the, the heterogeneity of the group, the, 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 the cross-section of the group helps everybody understand, I think implicitly, that the symptom is not the issue. That right. it's the underlying feeling that, you know, the, the gamer and the heroin addict share or the codependent anxious kid shares with the depressed kid and so forth. Have you noticed over the past, um, uh, you know, 15, 20 years, that more people are sending their children for mental health, like at different, there's a different threshold for when to get treatment. Um, was, did it used to be more substance abuse and it's kind of more of a mix? How do you get those parents that are willing to send their kid who had, who has never had a drink or a drug? It's actually kind of the opposite in some ways. I mean, we're getting, we're (laughs) getting those kids, we're getting those kids, but I find that people are waiting longer. I think that really? it might it might be financial. It might be that um, interesting. Um, see, I think I think some of the some of the the the, the press around all of our programs in, intimidates people. And I think people are waiting to, for this to be the last ditch yeah. effort. You know, right. and again another thing that a child will you will hear it if you spend a day in a group with with uh, of your, with young people you will hear and you're asking questions you will hear a client say everybody should do this you know that everybody That's could benefit true. from this so 
sort of yes to your question. And then there's the other side of it where people are waiting because it seems too dramatic, too drastic of a decision. And, 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 and I always say to people, when you're deciding about making a big decision like this, um, the question is, am I overreacting or underreacting? <laughs> and there are pros and cons to underreacting. And I know what those are. It's not very relevant. It's, it's over-treating. Um, those, are, those present challenges. Underreacting, the consequences are life-threatening. The consequences are that the behavior becomes so ingrained, so compulsive, so wired into the brain that it becomes more difficult to treat. So you have to make an informed decision. You have to talk to the people that you have to talk to. But um, I, I guess I think I see both people underreacting to it and then people saying, you know what? This is a great way for our family to reset, a great way for our family to get out of this this rut, this hole, to build a bridge between us parents and the child in a powerful, powerful, impactful way. So I, I kind of see both. With the families, you do, you wrote a book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home and the Audacity mm -hmm. to Be You, Learning to Love Your Horrible, Rotten Self. Uh-huh. And you do a lot of parent teaching and, and about, you know, about parenting, you have all of this experience and then all of the data from, you know, years, decades of working with teens. What are some of the things that you find yourself saying to parents who have, you know, that you just, you're like this, I say this literally every time I talk to someone. That the solution to your problems is not fixing your child. Hmm. <laughs> the solution to your, you, you have to shift from your child being the project to fix to you being the project. That parent education doesn't change children. It changes parents. And that that change in a parent can have a wonderful impact on a child. And that you're responsible for your feelings. I think the most common parenting technique that most people go into parenting with in all culture, cultures that I speak to is... A parent thinks if I articulate my feelings to my child, my frustration, my anger, my disappointment, my pride, my happiness, my exhilaration, those will be indications to the child about whether or not they're doing well or not. If I'm angry, you're doing poorly. If I'm happy, you're doing well. The problem with that is, and then the child, the child then becomes wired literally. Their brain becomes reorganized in such a way to believe that they're responsible for other people's feelings. So when a peer gets mad, when a peer thinks they're cool or not cool, they think that's about them. And then the parent thinks, why is my child so susceptible to peer pressure? Why don't they know who they are? Where's their esteem? And the answer to the question is, it started with us. We taught our children to be responsible for our feelings. And so they grew up in a world where the, the project isn't becoming who they are. The project is trying to take care of other people. And what they're self-medicating in many cases is the guilt and the shame of any urge or any impulse that goes contrary to that. So the, the first thing I say is you've, you've got to make a shift to do your work. And the second thing is it's not a child's job to get well, to take care of you so that you can sleep at night. That's your responsibility. Like they say in Al-Anon, your serenity is your responsibility and what other people think about you is none of your business. I said to a parent today that was inquiring about the program after a long discussion, I said, yeah. If I were talking to your son, I would tell him that what you think about him is not his business, but clearly he's in pain, clearly he's suffering, clearly he's struggling. That's what we're going to treat, not making you proud, making you happy, 
giving you a sense of pride in your child's accomplishments. That's your responsibility. Go work on that at Al-Anon or Codependence Anonymous, and we will treat your child for the self-sabotaging behaviors that, that are crippling him right now. Isn't parenting at its core somewhat codependent and somewhat, you know, like it, it's not a perfect process. Every kid is different, but how, if I'm, you know, my, my, my boys, they do jujitsu and, and I always try to make a point of like, I'm really proud of them for doing, you worked so hard. That was awesome. And so my, I'm telling them that I value hard work and that I'm, I actually am doing that consciously, but if they don't feel like working hard, right? Like I'm, then maybe they believe they're going to disappoint me. How do I, or, you know, anyone, how does anyone parent, um, without, you know, you are excited when certain things happen and you are disappointed when other things happen. Am I wiring? Am I supposed to have no reaction? What's the, what's the, you know, right way to do that? So to speak. I think it's important to be, I played baseball, little league when I was growing up. I think it's important to show up to the game and to cheer. Okay. I just don't want to hear your voice singled out in the crowd when I'm at bat or on the mound. Cause I was a pitcher. I don't want to hear my dad coaching me from the, from the, the, the stands, huh. okay. like, be a part of the crowd, be my cheerleader, encourage me. If I lose, be a shoulder to cry on, be there, but don't be so loud that that eclipses my own sense of myself. And so I think with very young children, we can say, first of all, praising effort is the key, not results. Cause effort is something they have control over. If you praise results, children will avoid difficult things. They'll cheat and they'll quit more mm. often. The research shows us the reference for that is nurture shock, um, the book nurture shock. But so praising effort is the key. But secondly, gentle praise, gentle encouragement is great. But this over anxious, huh. I'm going to make you feel good about yourself. Right, the right. child unconsciously senses that that's about the parent and not about them. And they feel this, this, this conflict to take care of the parent. So it's a delicate process. I also want to say something else, Ashley, and that is this can be learned very, very young. A lot of these principles, people always tell me, well, my children are young, so I don't know how much it applies. But, you know, when my children were very young, I remember coming back from a business trip and one of my young children saw me walk in the door and ran in the laundry room and hid. Hmm. I came home while a babysitter was there. My wife was doing something. And the babysitter went in and said, Come in and tell your dad that you missed him. Come in and tell him that you're glad to see him. And I said to her gently, I said, in our family, you get to feel all of your feelings. And I totally understand her running away. So mm-hmm. it's okay. I got this. You know, you can, you can stand over here and I'll walk in there and I'll respect the wound that is being demonstrated by this behavior and I will respond to it. So I think all the principles that we teach in treatment are great for prevention. I think it's yeah. great for maintenance. And there is an anxiety that comes from parents of young children that they want to make their children feel good about themselves. So it doesn't matter what you say or do. When the child feels that need in a parent, that's the part that hurts. That's the part that affects them. So that's why take your feelings, whatever they are, go over here and process them. Get a sponsor, get a, get a mentor, get a friend that you trust, get a therapist, so that when you come to the child, the interaction is not to serve to make you feel better. It's very interesting as, you know, and, and you could probably relate to this. I, I have to think hard about what is about me and what is about them. Like I have to stop 
And I, you know, I'm trained to do this and it's still really, sometimes I find myself like, oh, this is about me. I -hmm. want them to finish the book because I think we should start at the beginning and finish at the end. They don't want to do the, you know, like this is about my stuff. This is, and I have to really go in and, and do some, you know, work. And while life is happening, right. All the stuff's going on. Sometimes it's, you're, you're like, you're just barreling ahead. You're just trying to get through it. And the more pressure and the more that, that your kid is acting out, the, the stranger, your behavior can become. I know that happened with my, I I interviewed my mom, her, our podcast came out on Tuesday and we talked a lot about how, you know, one of the things that's really amazing in our house was that I, I had a lot of rage and, and was using, and so was pretty violent in our home and that my parents never hit us and they never hit me, even in all the things and Mm -hmm. how, you know, she was saying like, it is so hard to become, you become a parent. You you don't want to be, you don't see yourself being because mm-hmm. you're react. You find yourself in constant reaction to this other person who starts to take over control of your life. And when they're little, I, you know, for, for at this point in, in my kid's life, I notice things. Um, I notice how I feel, how I feel uncomfortable you know, I have one kid that's an introvert and I'm an extrovert and I, I I feel very uncomfortable uh, when it happens, even though it's not a bad thing, but it's because I don't relate to it. And Mm -hmm. so many of us are trying to be better parents. We're informed parents. So we read these books, right? We read about how to be a better parent and then we obsess on it. And I think it's interesting, like as we become more aware of mental health, more interested in being involved and all these things, we become the parent who's yelling more loudly. And so we have this dichotomy of more interested in helping in mental health and being aware, right? I'm reading the books, whole brain child. I'm reading, you know, about introvert, extrovert, and how to deal with an extrovert parent and introvert child and all this stuff. And it does create some level of like, well, they said to do this and they said to do this and da, 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 da. And, and less of a, this natural flow and lack of anxiety. I wonder how we both take this awareness and, and desire to be mentally well, while also not being, you know, super anxious about it. There was a quote going around a couple of weeks ago on my social media feed by Ramdas, where he said that most people try to solve the I am bad with I am good or I am unlovable. They, they, they counter it with I am lovable. lovable right. And Ramdas said, explained that that doesn't work because yeah. the, the, the opposite of I am good and I am bad and I am lovable and I am lovable is I am, which is everything. I'm crappy sometimes. I'm beautiful sometimes. I'm intelligent and, 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 and mindful, and other times I'm reactive and, and, and ridiculous. When you can embrace all of yourself, you're an easy person to be with. But if you have to be a good mom or I have to be a good dad, then our children will sense that need and they'll give up who they are to support that need in you. That's mm-hmm. what a child does because if they become too much for, for you, yeah. the, the, the human experience is that they will be abandoned and then they will die. So the survival of the child depends upon mom smiling and dad smiling, mom and dad feeling good about themselves. And so they will take care of that wound that is unhealed in us 
and create one in them. We will pass it on to them. So the work is the heroic parent title is heal your trauma for the rest of your life and realize there's a, there's actually a section in, in the journey of the heroic parent called being an idiot parent and that the most enlightened folks that have walked on planet earth don't live according to shouldn't shouldn'ts and bad and good. They live according to human fallibility, wholeness. Carl Jung said, I would rather be whole than good. And so it's like you, Ashley, it's so easy for me to translate any idea into a should. So when I learn about a, a parenting idea or skill, my brain turns it into a should versus just the other night, my wife and I were talking and she was talking about, I've struggled with depression during the pandemic and it showed up in my, in my waistline and in my body movement. And my wife was saying, you know, you're re she respects my brain and she's asking me lots of questions. And, uh, you know, why can't you figure out the formula and the solution? I said, Michelle, what I'm trying to do right now is to be love and loving and patient with my fallibility. Mm. Like I'm, this is me doing the best I can. Right. I know it doesn't look like it at times. Yeah. It, it, as pathetic as I can be in my <laughs> practice, uh, my mental health practice, my physical practice, this is me trying. And so the shift in therapy for me is not you coming to me and me teaching you how to do it. It's me loving you, actually. It's me doing something different to you. And in the context of that love, that compassion, that curiosity and that non-judgment, you heal. Carl Rogers said, the great paradox in psychotherapy is that when I accept myself, I can change. <laughs> and, and I think because you and I, most humans grow up about fixing and getting it right and improving, that energy that Ram Dass is talking about, about I am good, I am bad, what he was saying was the opposite of, of I am bad is not I am good, it's non-judgment. Mm, it's, and that's right, right, the right. healing bomb, right? That's the moment when I get to be a blob. I get to be loved as I am. That's the moment that inspires change. That's why the bishop in the in the in the book and in the um, in the musical Les Mis, when he gave the silver candlesticks back to Jean Valjean, and the protagonist in the story changed his entire life and adopted a girl and loved her as his own and gave up his life for her love because a bishop gave him something that he didn't deserve. Right. He gave him a, a love that was unearned. And that's what changes us in therapy. That's what changes us in relationship. And you must see that a lot with children who come into the program and, and the average, I'm, I think is six to eight weeks. Is that for 12? A minimum six weeks. It's about 10 on average, 10, 10 on, average. on average. And, and you, so they get this person, this person back, the, the parents do most of them make that shift in that period of time or do something, you know, my mom always said to me, um, you know, they told us to work on ourselves and my daughter is at death's door. She told me I needed to work on my trauma and look at, you know, they told me I needed to work on my trauma and go to these meetings and talk about myself. And my child is at death's door. There's nothing I can even think about that's yeah. outside of that. And, and, you know, yet showing up and being like acknowledging and loving them for where they are. Is that what you're seeing or how, how do these parents react I wish I could read you word for word an email that I got this morning from a mother. And it's one of a, a numberless amount of emails. She said, when I listened to your first broadcast, I do broadcast one or two per week. I've done about 1400 webinars. Now they're turned into a podcast. 
Um, she said, Brad, on my first my first broadcast, you were telling me to do my work and my child was on death's door. Same exact thing, almost word for word that you just said. And she said, but I kept listening. And now nine months later, my whole life has shifted. My relationship with my child has shifted. My relationship to myself has, self has shifted. So kind of what I say to parents is, yes, we're a treatment program for young people. We got them now. They're safe. Now let's see what your work right. is. We, right. we got their work. They're not on now death's door today. They're not on death's door today. We got, in fact, symptomatically, they're sober. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're off their self-medicator. So we got them. Now what is your work and, and what is your trauma? Because the number one predictor of a parent's ability to provide a healthy attachment to a child is how much they've made sense out of their own life. And the research on that, the reference for that is the book Parenting from the Inside Out by Daniel Siegel and Mary Hartzell. That's the number one predictor of a parent's attachment is how much they've looked at their life, not how good their life was growing up because mm. they can have a good life, but if they haven't explored it, it won't make a difference. And they can have a really difficult life growing up. So the number one predictor of a parent's ability to provide healthy attachment in all cultures, according to attachment research, is how much work the parent has done to understand their own early life experiences. That will predict their ability to be present with their child, to see them, to hold space, to contain them, and to, to express appropriate and healthy boundaries. A lot of of parents, a lot of people rather, who, who listen to this podcast are either in recovery or trying to, to get into some sort of recovery. Um, how, you know, I, I'm, I'm in recovery. My husband's in recovery. One of the things that comes up is pa parenting as someone right. Who's in recovery mm -hmm. and, and there's the explored self, right. I've made sense of my life. My husband's made sense of his life. But we also have this genetic component that we're very well aware sure. of, and 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 we have these biases or about um, what behavior. Oh, that behavior is alcoholic or whatever it is, and and there's this terror that we know what it looks like. There's the the terror that you have as a parent, whether they've seen you drink or not. Do you have parents that you know? Do you counsel parents that are in recovery and? and, and their kids come and, and how, how does that unfold in terms of having explored yourself, but in some ways knowing what that even means? You know, I, I can't tell parents not to be afraid when their child's right. acting out, right? Because that's just silliness. But what I can say is that's your job to take care of your fear and anxiety. So go take care mm. of it somewhere. Mm. You know, we ask all of our parents to try at least six 12 step support groups, Al-Anon, Codependence Anonymous, Families Anonymous, um, or Adult Children of Alcoholics. Um, because that fear that you describe because of you've so closely connected to the trauma of having having an addiction and, and, and watching what it can do to yours and other people's lives, that's not going to help parenting. Fear mm. is the enemy. Fear is the, the mm. it's a great wake up call. It helps us to, to set boundaries. But if we come to our children in fear, they will feel the need to take care of our fear. So we have to take care of it. So I tell parents, I'm not telling you not to be scared. Your kid's shooting up or cutting on themselves or hasn't been to school in six. Those would cause anybody who loves a child to be afraid, but it's your job to take care of your fear, not theirs. Right. If you don't take care of it and you show up with it, the child will feel an unconscious pull to take care of it. And most of them will fail at it. So they'll just self-medicate more for the guilt and the shame of having failed their parent and the fear right. of what that might produce. So 
take that fear that you have and go get it treated. Not just the symptom of addiction or, or drug use or alcohol use, but, but what I think is the core issue of addiction, which is those attachment wounds. Another thing that's important, there is biology. Not everybody's nervous system is has the same level of sensitivity and reaction to substances and trauma and events. That's a fact. Some nervous systems are, are, are going to be primed for addiction. You know this, of course, as well as anybody. And so what I say to parents is dealing with those kinds of kids, you're going to need some extra help. You can't mm. just do what you did or do what worked for you or work, work for the next kid who's not addicted. Right. You need extra help. And that's what all these people that I'm describing are there for is my daughter said it last week, Ashley, my adult daughter said last week in a parenting meeting I was running. <laughs> she said the words to escape, to, 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 to get out of my family dysfunctional patterns. I feel a lot of guilt and I need help to carry that guilt. So I go to therapy every week to help to get help so that my therapist can help me carry that guilt. She's talking in part, not just only, but yeah. in part about me. And I couldn't have been more thrilled and happy for what she was saying because I said, that's it. You got to go somewhere else to help somebody deal with your fear, your guilt, your shame, your anxiety. Because if you don't, the child will be inclined to, to either carry it or, or, or feel the crushing weight of it on top of whatever their, their biology and, and their system is already dealing with. They'll feel the weight of, of your wounds, the weight of your unhealed trauma. Are there non-dysfunctional or functional families? Theoretically, I'm sure there. I haven't met any yet, <laughs> but I could either. imagine one in a fantasy world. <laughs> See, in this way, there's no, since there's no judgment about it, we're all crazy. When right, a parent right. says to me, I'm a good parent, I fear for the child, period. When a parent tells me they're a good parent, I'm like, that child's gonna have it rough. <laughs> And when a parent says, I'll remember that for when I call you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, when a parent says, I struggle all the time, I think kids got a chance. Mm -hmm. the, the, the enlightened ones don't talk about and think of themselves as good. The enlightened ones think of themselves like Ramdas said, as I am. Right. I'm good, Doing bad, and everything in between. Right. right. And then when a parent becomes a person, because that's all it is, right? Then the child gets to be a person. Right. You get they get to be all of themselves because all of themselves can be tolerated. Do you find, you know, when I I, I call it um, postpartum sobriety uh, because my I, my postpartum sobriety, because I, you know, I've been sober 10 years when the twins were born and it rocked me. It changed me in a way that I really didn't see coming. Um right my trauma I had dealt with, like really dealt with, I had, but mm -hmm. it came up in a new way. And, and it came up in seeing my kids at age, you know, seeing my kid at an age that I was, you know, abused at, like, see, just, right. it, 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 I mean, there were so many things that have happened that just really shook me and I had to do different new work and it changed, right. you know, my husband and I were like, I'm like, you know, I, I'm different at, for, for, you know, because of them, how I would think that that's the major, majority of the time that's moms more so like at least that are in touch with it. I mean, I know that mm -hmm. dads, I know that my husband was changed, but not quite so much. And do you, is, are you experiencing, um, 
or do you experience with mothers this difficulty separating from I'm their mom, I'm a mom to I'm Ashley and I like these things and I do these things. I'm, I mean, I struggle with that. I'm like, right. who am, I, I'm separate. This is, it, it becomes such a big thing is, do you see that like down the line? Like, oh, you haven't nurtured any of the part of you. I do. I, I, I think even though we've made a lot of progress, still in society, women are, are graded on how their children turn out more than men. And men are graded on the, how much their car and their house costs, what's in their bank account. That's still a cliche. I know we don't want it to be that way. I know there's been progress. And so I always have to acknowledge that I'm a male and, and, and I don't come with that societal expectation. My differentiation is supported by the culture, sometimes even to a toxic level where I, I, I could be tempted to become disconnected. But yes, I think that, that the mother is expected to be selfless. Right. Right. To, 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 to give up who she is for the child. And in some ways it's supported biologically because when she's pregnant and in, in those early phases, the, the symbiosis is literal, Yes, right? It, it's, it's, it's parasitic. Right. Even. It is very parasitic. <laughs> so I think for women, the journey is uniquely challenging in different ways for, for the fathers. I'm just trying to get them involved at all. Right. You know, like, like, like you matter, you may actually, I, I don't know if I've ever said this on a podcast. When I was a new dad, I didn't think I mattered because I didn't have a dad around. I really didn't. And my mother said to me one time, she asked me about some of my interactions with my young children. And I, and I literally thought, they'll be fine. I'm fine. Quote unquote. Right. Right. Oh God, you must hear that. Well, I've turned out fine. <laughs> and she said, talk to them every day. And here's some things you can do. It was very simple instruction. And it wasn't what she said to do that made the difference. It was my awareness that I mattered. And, and I know that sounds strange, but I didn't think I mattered. And so that's our wound. Right. Um, that's our, our, our father wound. The mother wound is intrusion. Right. Where the mother's sense of self is, in, is, is, is overlapping with the kid. The mother gift is empathy and connection and warmth and nurturing. The father gift is independence and selfhood. Yes. And, and, and a child kind of becoming their own self. The father wound is abandonment. Right. Right. That's when fathers go too far, which a lot of them do, it's abandonment. When mothers go too far, it's intrusive. And then, of course, the opposite side of that is the gift that they give. Typically speaking, right. you know, being speaking of the masculine and the feminine in terms of gender, those are the patterns that we see. So, yes, women, mothers in our society, I think, have a, a qualitatively different challenge than men. For men, it is can you learn to feel? Can you stay present? Can you not try to fix? Can you not? look at everything so practically and pragmatically and, and maybe look at it just through the, the, the lens of feeling, can that be enough for you? So it's a, so it's a different challenge. What would you like to see, you know, as someone who treats, treats this population, mm -hmm. the, you know, those of us, my, my generation, I guess we're, we're the oldest millennials, you know, we're raising the next generation and what would you like to see this next generation being taught uh, that you think will, you know, could put you out of business. Haha. -ha. Um, but you know, our, as we always say, our job is to put ourselves out of business. Right. What, you know, what do you want young boys to be taught? What do you want young girls or, or however people identify to be taught that could change the 
you know, the, the, the course of the treatment that you you're doing and improve our society. Just that. Yeah. Just that, just, just that I, I had about five answers as you were yeah, asking yeah. the question. I, I think what I would want people to know is that there's a, I borrowed from, from one of my therapist's books to, to, to write for my, the epigraph for my, my second book. And she said the notion, why were each of us taught the notion of being correct when that notion ensured our failure in the world? So what I would like to teach people is that the goal isn't to be good. The goal isn't to be a good something or other, a pretty or a talented or a smart or an accomplished something or other. The goal is to be a self, which is messy, which includes mistakes. And so it's it's really- Would you greatest, say authentic? The goal is authentic, to be- Authentic is a good word. The greatest barrier on planet Earth, and in, in, in my opinion, to people's development is the illusion that they can be good. And that if you accept, you know, the, the subtitle of my second book, Learning to Love the Horrible Rotten Self, says that if you, I say in the book, you don't get to be good or right anymore. You get to be a self, which is so much better. And you can't not dent your children. So stop pretending that it's possible. Yeah. That you, that you won't dent your children. And then your children get to feel angry and hurt and sad and resentful, and they get to move through their feelings, and they don't need self-medicators, and they don't need to escape them because when you sit with a child in their feelings, they can sit with their feelings, generally speaking. So I suppose my, my grand magic wand wish would be that we destroy the illusions of should and shouldn't, and we mm -hmm. just learn what it means to be a self, to be a person, to be a human. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And, and sitting with them, <laughs> I, we have this um, thing in our house where my kids at home, we, they have these, I don't know if you're familiar with the spot books, but it's a spot of emotion. And mm -hmm. we, my kids literally, they love them. They want to, they want to read them over and over again. And, um, and so at home we talk about feelings and we talk about, are you having a spot of sadness or you have a spot yes. of anger, this kind of thing. And, um, and then they go to jujitsu and they, when they're there, their coach is like, you know, you're okay. They're crying and you're okay. You're going to get up. Are you hurt? And, the, and it's much, I, I was, you know, watching it as a mom, who's like, talk about your feelings. Um, you know, it's much like work going to push through that and you're going to be okay. And you're going to see how resilient you are. And I see that you're upset and it's okay. And move. That doesn't mean you stop moving. Mm -hmm. And what it's kind of the thing where I was like, yeah, like I, it's important to have both. It's important to this idea. It's like, I'm, I'm teaching them both things. They're getting mm -hmm. both messages the same way that I have, you know, when my husband does things with the kids that drive me nuts. Right. And, and, and he takes them on a hike without water. Hello. Um, right, right, you know, right. or whatever. And he's like, we were fine. Like you went on a hike without water, you know, and, uh, and, and it's just teaching this whole other thing and, and being grateful that they, they, that we have these two different relationships and allowing that to be okay. And allowing my fear to sit elsewhere. And it is so, as a parent, it is super scary to, right. to, to frankly, just be a parent and, and do that. So I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, I, I, on the one hand am super, um, you know, I, I try hard to give them what they need. And on the other hand, I'm really grateful. There are programs out there and people out there that can help us and me when, 
you know, when the, when it's too big for, for my toolkit. And, and I think that's evoke has that. Do you guys ever do anything where you have people come and have an experiential, um, you know, people kind of in the public do an experiential where they're not, they're not in crisis per se, or you have like, you take small groups out and do workshops. We have a pursuits program. We have, since you visited, we have two other programs, a pursuits program that's, that can be outdoors and adventure. And it's, it's the assumption is not that there's a mental illness issue or an addiction issue, um, where we can do a, a customized program. Like I did with my son, he did it in the Dominican Republic, but we can do it anywhere on the world. We've done oh, it in wow. Nepal. We've done it in South America, Central America, Canada, all what, over. So what is it? I was going to ask evoke pursuits. It's on our website and you, they go with a group or they go families. We've done groups, families, or even in my son's case, in some cases we've done them individual. And we also run an intensive program in park city. That's another piece where it's psychodrama. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's a five- shit is intense. <laughs> yeah. You know what, what it's like. I, I did it at the meadows and I was like this, I was 18 and it was yeah. uh survivor's week psychodrama. And I'm right. telling you, I was like, this is the dumbest, most embarrassing. I was so embarrassed, embarrassing right. thing. They're going to have me talk to this chair. They have lost their minds. I'm here for drugs. Oh my. I mean, I just, I was, I was incensed that these people were so stupid that they would make me do this. And then we left. There was the most powerful, you know, unbelievable. I'm like, just give it a chance. We we call ours finding you Mm -hmm. is the name of it for, for individuals. We do them in groups of seven. And then we also have finding connection for couples and finding family for family. So we have an intensive program also that's indoors. We can do some, some day adventure trips if, if people want to customize it, but it's indoors it's psychodrama, group experiential, art therapy, meditation and mindfulness. Mm. It's all of that into anywhere from a two-day program to a six-day program we do in, in, in northern Utah. So we do that also. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah I always think that, um, you know, I guess I guess outward bound was the type of thing. I always think, you know, it'd be just, you know, how you're, 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 someone said everyone should do this. Right. I always think, you know, think that like, yeah, everyone should do this. How how could we normalize, um, you know, and, and, and incorporate this into an, into a regular life that isn't in crisis. So maybe that it doesn't get to crisis. I I mean, I have a podcast, as you know, finding you, um, part of my method is I talk about what a disaster I am (laughs) every day, you know, and what I get, I get emails from all over the world all the time. Some people are worried that it, that it takes away my authority when I say, mm. when I talk about my stuff. And I said, if my authority is based on being good and having it figured out, it was fragile to begin with. Mm. My authority comes from being authentic. Right. So I, I don't do my work online, but I share the evidence of my work, the stories from my work, from my mistakes um, as often as I can. And, and, and I get these letters that are saying, when I hear somebody like you, talking about their own work, talking about their mistakes. It's a de-shaming experience where then I can talk about my struggles, my, I can lean into my work. So I think that's, what's beautiful about the 12 step fellowship is that people aren't in there shining bright all the time. You come in there and you say, here's the despicable things I did under the influence of alcohol. 
and some old timer says to you, you belong, sit yep. next to me. And I think that's what we can do. We can all say, mm. we struggle. The experts, if, if you meet an expert, quote unquote, mm -hmm. that doesn't have a struggle story, run, walk away slowly, you know, <laughs> get away from them as quickly as you can, because they're not to be trusted. You, you have to have somebody who's touched the darkness, who's touched their own wounds, who's, who's made a lot of mistakes because that's part of the human experience. And if, if they don't have experience with, with those things, I don't know how they can help you. I really don't, frankly. Well, they, if they don't have experience with those things, then they haven't discovered that they've had experience with those right. things. That's my that's, opinion. Right? I didn't want to say it, but that's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they don't know that they've done it. And right. so they have a lot of work to do and they're not going to be able to, to, to help you. It's, it's, it's important for people to, to have that struggle. It's, it's, it's when somebody tells me this is my, my true joke, my, my honest joke that I tell when somebody says to me that they had a good childhood, I tell them that therapy can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> when someone tells, when people talk about, when people describe like a really normal, like functional, it, it freaks me out. I'm like, oh my gosh, it was like, I I'm thinking, I'm like, they have no idea. It was right. totally like, it, right. it, it, it really, or these, my mom loves these Hallmark movies and, mm -hmm. um, and these, there's one, another movie, or another TV show. And they're very, you know, very Pollyanna and whatever. And I am freaking out on the inside, watching them the whole time. I'm like, that guy is a pedophile and it's right, nobody's right. talking about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I can't watch these with you. You're impossible. It's right. just, you know, but well, anyway, I, 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 I so appreciate um, you talking to me about this stuff and, and your time and where can people find you um, stuff about evoke your books, your podcast, all that evoke therapy.com drbradreed.com on Instagram at evoke therapy or at Evoke Therapy Intensives, or at Dr. Brad Reedy. Those are the best places to go to find out about our work and what we're doing. Awesome. You can find the books, links for the books, links for the podcast, links for free audio, and also digital copies of the first chapter of the book to see if it's, if it's worth your while. What is the name of the podcast again? Finding You, an Evoke Therapy Podcast. Awesome. And, and really geared towards parents and teen parents, right? Mostly parents, but, uh, but m many of our listeners, it's, it's just about being a human and learning how to love another human. That's, that's really what it's about is about if I could, if I were going to title my second book with what it, what it really was, it was, it's a book about how to be a person and to love other people. That's yeah. what it's about. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you and I appreciate the work that you do in your time. Thanks, Ashley. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.